Well, hey, everybody. So good to be with you. I want to tell you a story from Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. It's a brief little story about someone who is thankful. And the title of our message this evening is Just Wanted to Say Thank You. And my hope is after spending a few moments with this story about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, perhaps we can pause at the end of this message and consider something that Jesus is to you for which you're thankful. But I hope you've turned there at Luke 17. If not, it's going to be on the screen. I'm going to read this story from the Common English Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with skin diseases approached him. Keeping their distance from him, they raised their voices and said, Jesus, Master, show us mercy. When Jesus saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they left, they were cleansed or healed. One of them, when he saw that he had been healed, he returned and praised God with a loud voice. Then he fell on his face at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus replied, "Uh, weren't ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? No one returned to praise God except this foreigner? Then Jesus said to him, get up and go. Your faith has healed you. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer? Father, we are so grateful for life and breath. Each breath is a gift given from you, the breath of life. You who sustain all things seen and unseen. Our God, uncreated and unimagined, the creator and sustainer of all things. We want to pause this evening before we officially celebrate Thanksgiving and give you thanks for who you are, and as Kathy prayed, who you are making of us. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and memories of your goodness that we may clasp your feet and be thankful to you, our Savior, Jesus. We pray this in that name. Amen. Amen. Well, whenever we would go out of town or we would go on vacation, or whenever we would just be out and about as the Wood family. Not the Amy, Adam, Emma, Nora Wood family, but my family of four that I grew up with. Shout out to my mom who came tonight. Whoop, okay. You can thank Kathy for that clap. When we were growing up, anytime we'd go out, anytime we'd go on vacation, Our favorite family game to play was this. Where's dad? Let me explain. We'd be at a Mavericks game. And I'm talking about 2019. My brother and I, along with old dad, 
We're in the crowded concourse, making our way through the crowd. Then he and I look at each other. We turn around and we play. Where's dad? Imagine now, a few years back, we're checking into a hotel at San Antonio or wherever we are. We're standing in the lobby with our luggage. We're waiting on our keys. Then my mom and brother look at each other and say, where's dad? Or the mom variation, where is your father? (laughs) Right. Now imagine our version of the game this past Monday when we're at the Our Calling Gala fundraiser, this time for the 10-year anniversary at the swankiest of swank Omni Hotels in Dallas. They even had the side of the building lit up green with the OC Our Calling logo. And because Amy's on the board, she and I had access, access, access to the even swankier of VIP room. Only the finest in homeless poverty ministry, mind you. (laughs) We see our family arrive at the registration table, so we walk out and go into the lobby area. And then we all play the game, where's dad? So here are the answers to our recurring question in our favorite family game. Back to the Mavericks game. And if I'm lying, I'm dying. I've already talked to my dad. said, can I give permission to tell us, my church, about our favorite family game? Every Mavericks game, my brother and I look around and we find him at some promotional table. You know the ones. The ones you all walk past. And he's sitting there getting another free shirt that he don't need. He gives his email out to everybody, and he's chatting them up. Last time we were at a Mavericks game, we're in the crowded concourse, and he's chatting up the head of security at American Airlines Center outside of Section 101. Why is he chatting up the head of security? Because he knows him when he met him wandering around bored at an Adele concert three years ago. When mom was there at Adele playing her own version of Where's My Husband, he met this guy that still remembers him, knows his name, and we might find him there every other Mavericks game when we play Where's Dad? Now, back to the hotel lobby. Mom and Nathan, my brother, standing there. Where is Dad? Where is your father? Don't worry. He's coming around the corner with brochures, the brochures you all walk past when you go into the hotel, And he's already figured out where we're going to dinner because he's been talking with the concierge. Okay? Now the answer from last Monday at the Our Calling Gala. Amy and I in the VIP room with board members and the staff and just chilling before the big hoorah event. Then we go out to meet my family. Where's dad? Walk back into the VIP room. There he is talking with Emmett Smith. That Emmett Smith. The NFL leading rusher in the VIP room, which he was not invited to be in. And there's a crowd of people surrounding him, and he's laughing, and he's got Emmett's hand, and and Emmett's laughing. And so he leaves because it's time for the dinner, and Emmett Smith is a speaker. So we say, let's go, Kenwood. Get away from Emmett Smith. And I said, what were you talking about? And he goes, well, his son is, might commit to Texas A&M, so I was putting in a good word. 
And I said, you are trying to recruit Emmett Smith's son to your alma mater. That takes the cake in our game of where's dad. And for over three decades, this game is so wonderful because my dad can scarcely pass up an opportunity to go and talk to somebody, to that person. He's a salesman, you're right. He never meets a stranger. And when I was thinking about this story, this little brief story in Luke 17, I wonder if those 10 lepers, those 10 people afflicted with skin diseases, as they were on their way to the priest, if nine of them so overjoyed seeing their skin be cleared up, they could hardly believe their eyes if they didn't play some version of that game when they looked around and said, hey, where's your friend? And I wonder if they had a fleeting moment where they said, well, maybe he turned around to go say thank you. But if it was a fleeting moment, that's all it was. Because nine of them continued on and back to their lives, but one turned around to say thanks. To say thank you, God, because of what God has done in and through Jesus. It's so easy for us to keep on walking. We can be so happy for the gifts. And those nine that kept on booking it toward the priest, I guarantee you were happy. It's so easy to keep on being happy for the gifts without ever acknowledging the giver. Our whole culture can open up presents on Christmas and feel happy. Our whole society can gather around with friends and family and eat too much on Thanksgiving and feel happy. It's a scant few that actually turn back and say thank you to the giver. Now, it's vitally important for us, whether it's a day on the calendar or whether it's a day out of the week, or whether it's an hour out of every day, to pause and say thanks for who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And tonight we're going to do that. So I want to tell you, retell you, this short little story. I want to pause each step of the way because there's so much loaded within it about who Jesus is. And then, as I said a moment ago, toward the end of our time, I want to give you a few moments to think about who Jesus has been for you this year. And maybe we can all stop and say thanks. Hope you got Luke 17 open. I want to be referring to this story. But I need to give you some background. As with many or maybe all stories in the Gospels, where it takes place matters. Where is our little story set? Do you remember? It's set on the boundary, the border, between the Gentile region of Galilee. Gentiles is the Jewish word for everybody else, the nations in Galilee. And the 
hated by the Jewish people, Samaritan region. You'll see that map there on the screen. That little pink area at the top, you might need to turn around and see it on that monitor in the back as well. That is Galilee in the north. You'll see that it's right next to the Sea of Galilee. You got it? That green area there is the region known as Samaria. Y'all see that red dot there with the red letters there? That's that capital city, Samaria. Then, just beneath that, you may not be able to make it out, is Judea, and that's where Jerusalem is. So you've got the Jewish region in Judea, and just to the north of it is Samaria, and just to the north of that is Galilee, where Jesus spent a lot of his time and ministry. Now, we need to pause to get some of this background because Jesus is always bumping in to some Samaritans. Can you name me a couple other instances famously where Jesus interacts with a Samaritan? The woman at the well. Wonderful. Hang on to that because part of what they talked about was, yeah, you go worship at that mountain, but me, a Samaritan, we go worship at that mountain. So hang on to that. What's another famous Samaritan story or interaction? The Good Samaritan. Two for two. Sorry, y'all. Mark gets the gold star. Didn't even give you a chance. We need to understand this because Jesus is always bumping up to Samaritans. So that green section there, that's the region of Samaria. Now, all of that, the red, the green, and the yellow, used to be Israel. Just straight up, this is where God's people lived. If you're reading your Old Testament, that whole stretch there, that was God's people, the Jewish people, boom, done. David was the king. Things were rocking and rolling. Then they split. His sons had a war, and there was a rival monarchy set up because people are terrible, and we always want power, and we always want to be number one. So even God's people, way, 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 way long ago, in the middle of the Old Testament, split. So there was a northern kingdom, and they became known as Israel. And then there was a southern kingdom, and they were known as Judah. They all used to be happy and cool and chilling out together, but then they split into a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. My Bible people and Sunday school people are like loving this. Everybody else, hang tight. Because this is how we understand the Old Testament. Some of the prophets spoke to Israel in the north. Some of the prophets in our Bible were kicking it down south, speaking to Judah and Jerusalem. It's funny I mentioned Jerusalem because that became the capital city of the southern kingdom. You with me? Guess what became the capital of the northern kingdom? Samaria. So we've got this divided kingdom, not unlike the civil war in America, the north and the south. Okay? Now, two centuries after the north and the south split, those northern tribes were conquered by Assyria. So if you read some of the prophets, you'll hear them saying, watch out, the Assyrians going to get you. The Assyrians are going to get you. Well, they did get them, and they wiped them out. And when Assyria wiped them out, they brought more of their little Assyrian buddies 
you know that kind of person that's invited to the house party. They come in and they kind of are looking around. They say, this is a nice place. And then all of a sudden they call 500 of their friends and they show up. And all the people that own the house are looking around saying, oh, okay, this is a problem. They brought all of these people into that region. And here's why that's important. Like at house parties, sometimes people fraternize, as it were. And so these people that were brought in from Assyria began to intermarry with the northern Jewish conquered people. Still with me? Now, this really ticked off the Judean southern people because they were more ethnically pure They were the real Jews. They didn't get wiped out. And all these people up north are starting to become buddies and rubbing elbows with all these invading Assyrians. Well, after time, Babylon wipes out the south. That's the famous exile. But I'm more interested for our story today with our Samaritan friends. So after they've intermarried after they've got their own capital of Samaria, guess what happens when you marry somebody that has another God and other cultural practices? Do you think that they stayed perfectly true to the traditions of the Hebrew people? No. They began to get other traditions, other religions, and then this followed itself all the way down to when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, Way few hundred years later, when Jesus is at a well, they're still feeling the consequences of this. When she says, oh, yeah, Jesus, you must be one of those southern kind of guys that still worship and think Jerusalem is where it's at. I'm a Samaritan. We think our holy place is over here. Do you understand? In order to understand these gospel stories, in order to understand why Luke would say this leper was a Samaritan, in order to understand why Jesus would say this foreigner, we need to understand that this hostility is hundreds of years old in the making. So, a little bit before Jesus, that pink part Galilee, most of them converted back to Judaism. And they said, Jerusalem's where it's at. So if you wanted to get to the temple in Jerusalem, where do you got to go through? Except because people are petty and little boogers. Do you know what a lot of faithful and righteous Jews would do when they needed to go down to Jerusalem? They would take ways and they would say, forget that mess. I'm going four hours out of my way, and I'm going to go around little ways in Google Maps. Thank you very much. This is the kind of ethnic, prejudiced, racist tension that even touched God's people, especially touched God's people. So when Jesus is walking to Jerusalem, and he's taking the border route you might need to pause and say, what are you doing, Jesus? Maybe, just maybe, in our story, the Samaritan foreigner is the example, not the enemy. 
Maybe like when Jesus is telling a story that he made up called the Good Samaritan, he's challenging all these prejudiced, racist, holy, but racist Jews to reconsider their holiness if it meant that they hated their neighbor. Maybe Jesus is trying to force the issue by setting the Samaritan hated, half-breed, interloper, false religion, foreigner. Maybe if he's the example, you might not see him so much as an enemy. This is why this background is so important. Because doesn't Jesus always have a way of turning your assumptions upside down? Five times married Samaritan women alone in the heat of the day could not be someone that trusts and asks for the living water, right? A Samaritan passing along and seeing a beggar beaten down in need, surely he's not the one that gives him help and loves him with sacrifice. Surely these people just south of the border of us, surely they can't be examples of grace and forgiveness and perseverance, right? Surely our brothers and sisters in Africa, in third world situations and countries, they don't have anything to teach us about faithfulness and prayer and peacemaking, right? Well, these 10 lepers didn't just travel along the border, they lived on the border. They lived on the border of society, not fully integrated into the broader community of their family because their skin disease, which could be something as simple as psoriasis, it could be something as serious as true leprosy, but regardless, they couldn't go home and be with their families on Thanksgiving until they were cleansed. So they needed to stay far away, and they needed to announce when they went into the, uh, the, the, the village in the marketplace, they needed to say, we're unclean, we're unclean. If they ever went in, people stayed far away from them. So they just got used to staying far away from everybody else. So here is Jesus and his disciples traveling on the border, and they meet these borderland people far away from others. Let me ask you this. Do you think that Peter and John and all these disciples were comfortable, good Jews, used to taking the long way, riding on the border. Then they see all these lepers. You think they felt comfortable about where they were at? Or do you think they wondered why on earth Jesus would be taking them this way? But here's one of the things and the first thing I want us to be thankful for about who Jesus is. Jesus is present in the places that we feel uncomfortable. Jesus feels comfortable in those places we don't. He feels comfortable sitting beside that person that you got to fix, that you got to teach, that you got to tell them what's what because they're a sinner. Oh, they need help. Oh, they need this. And throughout in the Gospels, Jesus is seen just having dinner, just at a party. Jesus feels present and comfortable in the places that we feel uncomfortable. And how do you think it makes those others feel? 
comfortable. Do the presence of Christians, whether we're serving under a bridge or serving on a soup kitchen line, does that make our friends and neighbors feel comfortable or uncomfortable? I think the answer has everything to do with how much you're aware that Jesus is here and longing and loving them desperately and Jesus would be comfortable here. So why can't I? And that might put our neighbors and friends at ease as well. Jesus had no trouble traveling on the borders of society. And you know that this is true because guess what? The lepers approached Jesus. In the story, it says that they still kept their distance because they didn't want to get in major trouble, right? Because if they touched somebody, you ruined it for them. They ain't going to temple this week. They needed to be real careful, but they still are leaning in to Jesus. How many priests, how many righteous people, how many good Jews like the ones following Jesus had a year before taken the long route? How many good, righteous people kept their distance? And what message does that send to the lepers? These righteous people don't want nothing to do with us, so we must not want anything to do with their God. We have the line forming to the left of the homosexual LGBTQ plus community in our culture saying they want nothing to do with us, so why should we have anything to do with their God? And the rates of suicide among teenagers, the rates of those left out on the street and turned away is staggering. It should wake us up to see them as neighbors to be loved, not people to be condemned. Whether or not you think it's a sin issue, put that aside. Jesus knew that prostitution was not the greatest lifestyle for these women he encountered and he loved them and still drew them to himself. Even if you say, this is what the Bible says, even if you say that this is God's ideal, you cannot make a case against loving them sacrificially as Jesus calls us to love. This is why we need to understand that if our word about Jesus got around to that community or the neighborhood, what image of him would that outcast hear? Because I think these lepers approached Jesus because they had heard stories of this guy touches lepers when nobody else would. I think that's remarkable. Why would they try to risk being close to Jesus unless they've heard stories of him allowing others to become close to him? Now, whatever they had heard about Jesus, they heard enough to know that he was approachable. And this is another thing I'm thankful for, and I love Jesus. We see that Jesus is approachable for people we keep at arm's length. Jesus is approachable for people that we keep at arm's length. And it reminds me that it's the people at arm's length that Jesus wants to keep within reach. We want to keep them beyond reach. Jesus moves closer so that they might be within reach. Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood. Now everyone we encounter is a neighbor to be loved, not an enemy to be afraid of. Now, the ten lepers, 
moving closer to Jesus, they cry out for mercy. Jesus, master, show us mercy. I think this has been very similar to your typical panhandling spiel from lepers, right? If they had the cardboard sign that said, need a hand up, anything helps, God bless. This is a similar kind of cry. Jesus has heard this before. We see other places in the Gospels. Jesus, show us mercy. But here's the trick. They still called him master. They still had this sense that there's something different about Jesus. Maybe they heard the stories of other untouchables who were touched, other unhealables healed. Maybe they decided that they had to see for themselves. Maybe they actually believed that Jesus could do something about it. Maybe, just maybe, they learned what you and I have learned, that Jesus is merciful to those with nothing left. Here's the trick. You need to know that Jesus, the one we follow, is one who embodies what the scripture teaches about mercy triumphing over judgment. Because if Jesus led with judgment, not one of us could stand. If Jesus led with judgment and counted up all the ways we've turned our backs on him and all the ways that we've set our face and our fists against him, none of us could stand. But Jesus does not lead with judgment. Jesus leads with mercy. And I have the cross to prove it. While we were yet sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. And when you've been in situations with nothing left, nothing in your bank account of any merit, understand that in His way and through His people's hands, we can see that Jesus is merciful to those with nothing left. And I think that's something we're saying thank you for. But this is interesting. The next movement in our story, hearing their their requests for help, Jesus says what? Does Jesus give the magic prayer? Does Jesus lay the hand on them? Does Jesus say the mighty mission and the kingdom of God comes down? No, what does he do? What does Jesus say to them? Go, show yourself to the priests. You can write this down or thumb back in your Bible. Leviticus chapter 14. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 14 is this long chapter that talks about protocol for those with the skin diseases that Jesus is meeting. So when they're healed, they're supposed to go to the priest. And you can see this in the first few verses of of Leviticus 14. And there's this whole ritual. They got to sacrifice some birds. They got to get some branches and sprinkle them. They have to do this whole ritual cleansing process and make sure that they're good and healed. So understand this. Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priest. Follow me. The 10 lepers are going, "Um, I think we're supposed to go to the priest after we're healed. Um, And they're like looking at themselves and like, I'm going to get kicked out of the temple again. But Jesus says, go. And here's the trick. Jesus saying go presents an opportunity for them to trust that Jesus is up to something. You have opportunities right now in your life 
that is presenting an opportunity to trust Jesus. But it doesn't make sense if I do that. Trust Jesus. But I don't know how it's going to work out. Trust Jesus. Oh, but what if this? Trust Jesus. Every moment, an invitation to trust Jesus. Later on, Jesus will say, go again. And he says, your faith has healed you. Stick with me. Why would Jesus say that? Faith is another word for trust. Ten of them trusted Jesus enough to start walking to the priest before they ever were healed. Do you understand how powerful this is? Ten people, ten out of ten, 100%, had enough faith and enough trust that even when it doesn't make sense, I'm going to take a step. It doesn't make sense to forgive this person. I'm going to take a step. It doesn't make sense to write this check for this cause that God has put on my heart, but I'm going to take a step. It doesn't make sense to love this person, to spend time with this person, to be intentional with this person, to pray for this, to ask for that, to serve in this way, but I'm going to take a step. And guess what? You find yourself transformed. Because Jesus is surprising to all those who put him in a box. Man, I thought healing was going to look like this. Man, I thought that gift was going to look like that. Ooh, I thought this opportunity was going to look like this. Jesus did not pray a magic prayer. He did not lay a hand upon them. He did not lift up a mighty pronouncement. He just told them to go and take a step. How many times you thought, no way, and then Jesus surprised you? How many times you thought that follower of Jesus, no way, and they surprised you? I think that's worth saying thank you for. Of the ten that saw the skin diseases clearing up before them, oh Lord Jesus, if he would have told me when I was 16 years old, to go to the dermatologist and be free from my acne. And if I saw that clearing up right in the front of me as I was going, I would have said, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) But instead, he provided for me Accutane and Clearasil. But man, what these dudes would have thought walking home. Oh, man, you think they started running? This is powerful. I love this. They start walking home from isolation back to their families, from the border back into the center part of the warm living room with their children hanging off of them again, kissing their wife, kissing her husband, going back into life No wonder 90% of them said that was awesome and went back. Because it's so easy to keep walking and be happy for the gifts without saying thank you to the giver. But one put his life on hold to turn back and praise God. And this is fascinating because this has really blown me up, y'all. I've heard this person say this a few weeks. Jesus never asked, oh, somebody do this for me. Study the Gospels. Jesus never asks for anybody to worship him. Jesus asks us to follow him. 
When Jesus is incarnated on this earth, fully God, fully man, he's bringing in, breaking in the kingdom of God. He never asks for someone to worship him. He asks for us to follow him. Paul talks about worshiping Christ. John talks about praise and worship to Lord Jesus Christ. His disciples, years later, worship Christ. We worship Christ. Jesus never asked for worship. Who does he praise? God. And recognize through Jesus. So he says, thank you, Jesus, for letting God's power and presence flow through you and into me. That's something surprising to me. He comes back and he asks him this question. Where are the others? I wonder if that dude stopped his song, stopped his crying, tears of joy, let go of Jesus' feet and said, uh, dude, they did what you told them to do. They went to the priest, right? So I think that Jesus' question isn't meant to shame the others, but listen, to elevate the outsider as one who really sees Jesus. He's not trying to shame the nine. He's trying to elevate the one. Because what does Luke tell us immediately? One came back and he was a, what? Samaritan. And then the Jewish audience goes, Luke, how could you write that? And then Jesus, just to make the point clear, when Luke is telling us the story, yeah, Jesus said, but this one, the foreigner, he came back. By the way, what's more surprising? The fact that this one outsider, foreigner, returned to praise God and say thanks, or the fact that nine others didn't? I love that the outsider, the foreigner, the Samaritan, He's the one that came back because it makes me think of how many of us wonderful church folk drum up all our time, energy, and resources, and we go to that place on a mission field because we've got to show them Christ. And how many come back and say, no, those orphans showed me Christ. I saw in their face the face of Christ. I love the fact that he's elevating the outsider. He's elevating the foreigner, elevating the Samaritan, and saying, he's the one who sees. He's the one who gets it. You religious folk taking the long way down and bypassing Samaria are bypassing thousands of image bearers reflecting the suffering heart of Jesus, if you would have eyes to see, even a foreigner. That's powerful to me. I love that he sends this outsider twice. Wants to go to the priest, gets healed on the way, comes back to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, so follow me, let's kick it, we're going to Jerusalem. What does he do? He says, get up. Rise up, which everybody hearing this story in Luke's audience is like, that's resurrection language. That's new life language. Oh, that's a get up. There's a new day. New life is broken in. And then he says, go. Isn't this powerful? Why? Because this one, this foreigner, has a story of thanksgiving to tell. How many of you know that the prayers that God has answered aren't just for you. They're for that person 
that you're sitting across from this week to bear witness that when you were in their shoes, Christ met you. Christ gave you what you needed. The final thing I'm thankful for about Jesus is this. Jesus is sending us with a story of gratitude to tell. When was the last time you told someone about something that God has done? We get so freaked out. Well, how do I do this? When someone's telling you that they were sick, that they were in a dark place, that they were in a... It's so natural for you to talk about your family, your friends, your interests. Couldn't there be some on-ramps that could be just as natural for you to say, you know, that sounds exactly like something God would do. That sounds exactly like something God did in my life. Keep your eyes open, he might surprise you. Why do we have to overthink it so much? If we say that Christ is my everything, why can't we speak about him in every situation? This is something I've been thinking about. But I think it's something worth saying thanks for, that he's sending you this week with a story of gratitude to tell. So I want to tell you a story, and then I want to close the way I told you we would, giving you a moment and an opportunity to think about what Jesus has meant for you. But in his book, This Odd and Wondrous Calling, a former pastor named Martin Copenhaver talks about a question posed at a conference for his denomination, the United Churches of Christ. So they're in this big auditorium. Everybody's sitting down. It's a whole denominational conference. So you got speakers coming up, coming down, speakers coming up, coming down. But this one question like rocked the whole conference. And it's from a guy named Michael Green, who is a British historian of evangelism. And he asked this whole denomination conference, when was the last time you told your congregation what Jesus means to you. Now, you need to understand that it rocked that whole denomination because if there was a spectrum for like super fundamentalist over here on the right and super progressive and liberal on the left, the United Church of Christ is like four miles to the left of the left, right? Almost, that's an overstatement, but I'm trying to make a point that even to ask that question is to be like, oh, that sounds very fundamental to talk about Jesus and to talk about how um, he means something to me. And I'm not even saying that derogatorily. I'm saying that in his book, he's saying like, they went to the hotel bar and people were offended at this question. But reflecting on that one, he just couldn't shake it. So the time came that it was his last sermon to preach at a church that he had served at for nine years. So that question was still in his mind as he's writing his last sermon. So he says, you know what? After nine years, I'm gonna tell my congregation what Jesus means to me. And he writes these words. I want you to listen to it. It's not on the screen. This is powerful. As I am about to leave, there is something I wanna tell you. I wanna tell you what Jesus means to me. I want to share my belief that everything depends on him. I want to urge you to learn from him. I want to assure you that you can lean on him in times of trouble. I want to ask you to listen to his words of challenge. 
I want to tell you that I believe that you can entrust your life to him. I want to affirm that he is Lord of this church and that in his name you are freed to love one another and empowered to share that love with a hurting world. I want to profess that though once people could not look at the face of God and live, now we're invited to look at the face of God in him, in Jesus, and live as we have never lived before. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God with us all, whether we are together or apart. That's what it's all about. That's all I know. Amen. Don't you love those words? I also love a story that Copenhagen tells about what happened after he said those words in that sermon. So there he is at the back of the auditorium. A lot of those churches you've seen, the priest, the pastor goes to the back and people form a line and they shake hands as they go, right? You've been in one of these kind of churches? So he's doing this, shaking their hands as the last time as their pastor. And he sees this old woman, this saint of the church that has been there through thick and thin. And she's toward the back of the line and she just becomes overwhelmed with emotion. She's sobbing. So by the time that she finally makes her way to him, she can't even compose herself to say what she wants to say. So she actually gets out of the line and circles back around to the end to give her a minute. Well, the second time she makes her way through the line, she finally dries off her tears and she extends a hand to him and she looks him in the eye and she asks him another question that's going to blow him up. She said, why didn't you tell us this before? So he concluded that story by saying that now it's her question that still haunts him. Why haven't I told somebody before? Jesus is sending us with a story of gratitude to tell. When was the last time you told someone about something that God has done? When was the last time you told someone about what Jesus means to you? What does Jesus mean to you? For me in this story, Jesus is present, Jesus is approachable, Jesus is merciful, Jesus is surprising, and Jesus is sending. So I want to give you just a few moments of quiet, 30 seconds, to take a breath and imagine yourself turning back to the person of Jesus and clasping his ankles laying down at his feet, would you tell him what you're thankful for about who he is or what he's done? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. We just paused for a moment to come back to you and say thank you. Amen. May the Lord bless, and bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the broad expanse of God's love and the abundance of his riches and glory 
shape your perspective on your own life and needs, including those things which disappoint you. May the eyes of your heart be open to all the blessings which surround you. May this awareness produce a harvest of generosity in your spirit. May thankfulness rise up within you, not just during this short season, but day after day, from the early morning watch until you retire for the night. May your prayers reflect gratitude, while also acknowledging the needs of others whose situations are so drastically different. May thoughts of Jesus fill your mind, and hunger for God drive your soul, and love for the Lord guide your speech and your actions. And finally, may the grace, peace, and love of the triune God protect, defend, and empower you to run with perseverance the race marked out for you. Go in peace.